0: Welcome, everybody, to this week's edition of Novak Now on the Nachum Siegel Network. I'm your host, Jake Novak, and obviously this is a tough week to break things down, not just for the Jewish community, but for the entire nation. It's been a rough week, and um, I I wanted to get to some of that in a general sense, but of course, specifically, I really wanted to drill down on this horrific shooting at the Tree of Life. I assume their Hebrew name of the synagogue is Eitz Chaim synagogue in Pittsburgh, suburban Pittsburgh, conservative synagogue there, and discuss really the same thing that I've discussed in the past. If you've been listening to Novak Now this year, or followed my Twitter feed at jakejakeny, you know that I bring a lot of years of experience with these kinds of incidents. Sadly, there's a lot of them, both against the Jewish community and against others, and the way that these stories are covered in the news media, particularly on television, and now, of course, on social media as well. But you also know that what I have tried to do is really drill this down to what I think is the the proper response for the community at large, and the things that we should be discussing in the context of Jewish history and Jewish recent history. So let me explain what I mean by that. The first is, I'm not saying... (laughs) That the people who are directly affected, family members, the directly injured, those who had loved ones, who perished yesterday, have a right or wrong way to react. I'm not saying that. And sometimes there are survivors and family members of people who are victims in these kinds of things, who say things that we don't agree with, who say things that, or do things that we don't think are productive And yet, most of us, most of us have the decency to to kind of step back and understand that those folks are going through something that we cannot understand. Or maybe we can understand, but we certainly cannot scold them for the way that they're behaving. So that's not what I'm saying. I think that, obviously, the family members the loved ones, the friends, literally the friends, not just folks who I once went to that synagogue or I married somebody who grew up in that synagogue. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about people who are directly family and emotionally, relationship-wise, connected to some of these victims and their families. And you will never hear me, and, we shouldn't, and no one should, not because I'm doing it, just because that's just the right thing to do. We don't castigate them. It's the same reason why... I and many of my friends and and people like me don't get into arguments with Holocaust survivors about what should be learned about or done about the Holocaust. Just don't do that. It doesn't mean you have to agree with them and just change the way you're thinking. You should always consider someone else's point of view, so I'm not saying that. But we just don't get into shouting arguments or things like that with them because it's just an experience we can't really fathom. So what I'm talking about in today's program and what I've talked about in the past is what the community at large Not only just Jews, but people who are politically active or people who are thinkers about current events in the news. This is what I I highly recommend we all do in response to these kinds of events. So again, this is nothing new for me. You heard this from me in response to the one-year anniversary of the Charlottesville March. One of my earliest programs on Novak Now was titled... Donald Trump and the Jews, and you can find that on the archive page if you go to Nachum Siegel Network online and then look for archive shows, and you click under Novak Now and you scroll down, you'll find from the summer the, the program entitled Donald Trump and the Jews, where I discuss that to me, and what I think is really, really tr- obviously true, again, strip away all the fights that people want to have on a partisan basis, strip away all the political debates clearly the the most important and most angering but also the most proactive thing that we can do after something like charlottesville and this is just charlottesville where no one thank god in the in the synagogue was killed and the only person who was killed was someone who was killed by in, in a crowd with a car that was horrific but not something that had anything to do with uh, the jewish community specifically um but the thing that i learned Again, as I had learned many times before from Charlottesville was, how in the heck could there have been a synagogue in Charlottesville knowing this march was coming weeks in advance and not having even a guard, any security? Some people might have even said they should have moved the service outside of Charlottesville that day. It was a reform synagogue, so the idea of traveling a short distance on Shabbat was not an issue. Very, very small congregation. Could have easily been hosted in another community. Uh, I know Richmond is about 60 miles away. Maybe that was too far, but somewhere else. Or maybe they could have done something on campus uh, at the University of Virginia. Maybe the University of Virginia could have hosted them with their on-campus security present. But it outraged me. And again, I'm not pointing my fingers at the Jews in that synagogue. It just bothered me that once again, we have, after 70 years of the state of Israel, such a stark dichotomy between the Diaspora Jew, the Galut Jew, and the Zionist Jew, the Sabra and the Shtetl Jew, as some people call that. And there's a lot of great things you can say about Shtetl Jewish life. They preserved the tradition. They preserved the learning. They they survived a tremendous amount of, of, of hardship. But that kind of Judaism has to be over. It has to be over. It's not, it doesn't have a future. It hasn't had a future for hundreds of years. <laughs> it sounds like a joke, you know, you, I, I'm predicting the end of you for 200 years, but in other words, we've known that ultimately that kind of Judaism would not survive. The only kind of Judaism that can survive is Zionism. And yes, Zionist Judaism, coupled with a tremendous amount of Torah tradition, which has to be a part of it also, I don't believe that secular Zionism without any religious Jewish teaching or education has much of a lifespan either, frankly. That's for other reasons. That's for reasons of assimilation. That's for reasons of trying to understand what our, the point of Zionism is. Those things. But if we really want to drill it down to brass tacks, and I hate to be so blunt, but Zionist Judaism and the understanding that Jews are responsible for their own protection and that the best response to threats and actual attacks like yesterday and Charlottesville, that threat, is not to point fingers and to play political games and wish and pray that the nice Mr. President would say something nice to us. It doesn't matter even if he did. Our responsibility is to protect our own people and the state of Israel for 70 plus years— has made that very, very clear. Sure, they want to play political games. Sure, they want to get some political advantage. Sure, they want to survive as an economic nation-state. But they understand that none of that is going to happen unless Jews take responsibility for their own protection. This is very, very clear. And for those who think this was just something that the Jews of Israel learned from the Holocaust, you're wrong. You're wrong. Religious Zionism had been preaching this self-determination and self-responsibility and the idea of, in Hebrew, Ein so We don't rely on a miracle. We pray for miracles. But what we do to try to get a miracle to happen is try to lay the groundwork. We work very hard to try to make a, a miracle happen. And if you believe that the state of Israel and its military victories are miracles, I wouldn't argue with you there in a, in a general sense, but understand that that miracle didn't come out of nowhere. It came out of a lot of hard work, preparation and determination of the Jews on whose backs that miracle came. And it doesn't mean that every Jewish person has to get paramilitary training or that we all have to live with a, you know, a cache of amount of guns in our homes. That's not what I'm saying. But it does mean that we take responsibility for our own self-defense. And when these things, horrible things happen, which sadly, listen, friends, I know there are some people who want to point to the Violence of this week and the attempted violence of the last few weeks with other groups, whether they be religious or not. And I know a lot of people have a lot of career and financial points invested in blaming that all on the existing political tone right now or on this president. There's a lot of people who got a lot, a lot riding on that, especially now that we're just a few days away from a a big midterm election which is as close to a national election as we get other than a presidential election. I understand all of that. I don't think it excuses the fact that it's just not true. Sadly, we're talking about more than 2,000 years of these kinds of attacks on Jews, of these kinds of attacks on defenseless people. There's nothing new about that. Boy, in some ways, I wish there were something new about it so that we could maybe nip it in the bud. But it's, old, it's an old story, and again, to use another Hebrew phrase, from the, this time from the Bible, you know, from Kohelet, from Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun in this case. Nothing. Thankfully, what is new is that we have a state of Israel that has shown us that we can stand up for ourselves. Now, a lot of people misunderstand one of the things that I just said. They'll say, well, the state of Israel is around now, so the next time the Jewish people are really, really in trouble anywhere in the world you know, we can rely on Israel to save them. Now, I know there have been a couple of instances in relatively recent history where that has turned out to be somewhat true. The raid on Entebbe. uh, There have been a couple of other instances where Israeli commandos have come in and and saved Jews in non-Israel parts of the world. I get it. But honestly, that is a really, that's really not the lesson. The lesson is that, look, what Israel has been able to do in its own self-defense that is the lesson, and that is what we need to learn from. it. And again, doesn't mean every Jew needs to have paramilitary training. doesn't mean that we all have to live with massive amounts of weapons everywhere. But it does mean we take responsibility for our own security. It does mean that the following joke is no longer all that funny. A lot of you have heard a different version of this joke, and I just had a good friend who sent it to me again recently. The old joke about 10 or 11 Jews in Brooklyn have a late-night minion, and they walk out of the Minion, that 10, 11 group of Jews, Jewish men, walking on the streets in Brooklyn. And from a block and a half away, they see two relatively big guys who look a little bit dangerous. And one of the Jews says, Rabbi, 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 what should we do? Those two guys look pretty dangerous. And it's a group of 11 Jews. And the rabbi says, You know, there's not much we can do, there's two of them, and we're all alone. So, I mean, the, the joke there being that here we are, Jews, even if it were just two two against two, or two against three, we shouldn't feel like we're defenseless. We have to learn how to defend ourselves. And somebody in a Jewish group, somebody in a given synagogue, should always be prepared both with a weapon, yes, I said a weapon, and with training when Jews gather together. And that's it. And the fact that there are still people today who would still argue otherwise it's just not worth getting into an argument with them. That's like someone who wants to argue two plus two equals five. They can do it, and we can bemoan the fact all day that there are people who are like that out there. But it makes no sense, and and it's a waste of time to get into a debate with them. Do not get into a debate with them. And if those people want to blame a politician... Or And by the way, on both sides. Uh, I've seen on social media, I've tried to stay off social media less than usual the last 48 hours, and I've been mostly successful. But I have seen, in addition to the overwhelming majority of people who want to blame this on President Trump, which is absolutely ludicrous and disgusting and horrific to do, and also very, very counterproductive, but I have seen some people posting pictures of people like Congressman Keith Ellison, who praised Louis Farrakhan, and a number of people like that from the from the Democratic Party, and pointed fingers at them and said, hey, you never really denounced enough anti-Semitism either. There's plenty of political blame to go around, and that's the thing, isn't it? When things are unlimited, like political blame, then you have to ask yourself, what's it worth? Let's talk supply and demand here on Nachum on the Nahum Siegel Network here on Novak Now. Let's talk supply and demand. How much political blame is there in the supply chest right now for this country? I'd say it's overflowing. I'd say it's a bumper crock, my friends. It's everywhere. And when you have something that's that much in abundance, it means it's worth nothing. It's worth nothing. It's worth nothing to blame this on a particular politician. It's worth nothing to blame this on a particular policy. It's worth nothing to blame this on the actual weapon used. It's worth nothing to blame this on anything like that. It's also really not much worth to blame anything, even though obviously there are some things to blame. We can blame the the shooter, which I think is certainly appropriate to do, but I also don't know how productive it is to do that for very long. Let me once again here, on Novak now, bring in a saying that's very popular and very common in the Jewish community and one that I think we all pretty much fail to live up to. And that is the term Yemach Shemot, which literally translates to may his name be blotted out. And we'll say things like Hitler Yemach Shemot, or Haman Yemach Shemot, or any one of the other people who have been enemies of the Jewish people. And we literally are supposed to not talk about them that much. We don't want them to become memorialized and worshipped by our enemies. But we're just as guilty as anybody else when it comes to not doing that. We talk about them a lot. I'm seeing all kinds of profiles in the newspaper about not only the shooter, but the attempted package bomb mailer from Florida. Now, I'm not going to say either one of their names, but I'm not naive enough to think that other people won't ad infinitum for the next several days and weeks. And of course, there's a lot to that in the motivations for these guys. They like to see their name in the paper. They like to see that picture. And boy, do we accommodate them. We accommodate them a lot. More than just showing their pictures in the paper, sometimes we'll publish reams and reams of things that they've written, no matter how incoherent they are. A great example of that recently was in 2007 when the South Korean immigrant student went and shot up and killed all those people at Virginia Tech University. And not only did his name get out there and his picture get out there, but Networks published his entire manifesto and his videos, even though they were entirely incoherent, with the lame excuse of, like, well, hell, maybe this will help us understand him. No, it won't. Not unless you're a very highly trained professional. And even then, a very highly trained professional, most of them will tell you, they can't find out much from a patient they haven't personally seen and counseled. Now, one exception to that was the Unabomber case where the news media and the federal investigators looking for him, and of course we eventually found out it was Ted Kaczynski, decided in the mid-1990s that it would make sense to publish the Unabomber's Manifesto, even though, even though it too was wide, wildly incoherent in places, didn't really get us anywhere as far as that, that was concerned. But because he was still on the loose and still un, unidentified, investigators felt it was worth doing this, worth giving him a little bit of fame, so that they could find him. And you know what? They were right. They found Ted Kaczynski very soon, really just a couple of matter of months, I believe it was, after they published the manifesto. And in one of the cases of one of the true great sadics of our nation's history, recent history, it was his own brother, David, who read the manifesto and realized this was his brother in a way that no one else could have recognized. And he was the one who made it possible to catch Ted Kaczynski Kaczynski before he could hurt anybody else. And now he's in a federal supermax prison. My point is is that when the killers are already apprehended or killed like they were in, South, in the South Korean immigrant who, who killed the people at Virginia Tech, or in the case of this gentleman now in Pittsburgh who's been apprehended, publishing their writings, showing their picture in the paper, doing anything other than identifying them just so that we can quickly do that and move on, is the exact opposite of what we're supposed to learn from that term, Yamach Shimo. Yamach is, let's not... Let's not publicize these people. Let's not go into their thought process, whatever it may be, especially when it's obvious that they are mentally disturbed. But again, there are just too many people in our society on both, on all all sides of the political fence, all sides, who have way too much, they think, to gain by, by pointing the blame at their opponents and using whatever words or actions of these guys as proof, quote, proof, unquote, that the other side is politically wrong, which is an horrific thing, a disgusting thing to do. I will not accept it. And again, if one of the victim's family members or really close friends does it, I don't agree with it. I will not shout it down personally. But again, even then, it's not something that should be done. It's not something that should be done. You know, we live in a situation now where... We are overly politicized in this country, and there's a lot of reasons for it. And again, because I've been a television news journalist for over 25 years, I'm going to talk about what I know best, which is I know that my industry has a lot to do with it. The news industry has really been undercut in most of the avenues and most of the beats or segments that we used to cover other than politics. When it comes to entertainment news, we've been completely eclipsed mostly by social media. When it comes to sports, we've been eclipsed by fans themselves and teams themselves that put out their own content. When it comes to financial news, there's a little bit of a niche still there for the established news media, but not much. Remember, five or six pages of the newspaper every day filled with stock quotes are all gone. And that was stuff that was sponsored and made money for the newspapers. I'm just giving you one example. The point is, there are not a lot of places where the established news media still draws a crowd. Not a lot. But politics, for the most part, is one of them. Politics is one of them. And so that is why, in a big reason, for example, the presidential election cycle has been expanded in this country wildly. Now, I'm only 47 years old, but I can remember a time when we really didn't have people declaring their candidacy for president until 10 months or so before the election, let alone going on fundraisers and speeches and doing things like that. You declared your candidacy formally, usually in December or January before the Iowa caucuses or the New Hampshire primary. Obviously, privately, you did a lot of research and work before that time. I'm not saying people weren't thinking about and working to run for president but you didn't do heavy fundraising and you didn't do nationally televised primary debates more than a year before election day but that's exactly what happens now and why do you think that's happening there's two reasons for it one is what i you know what i've alluded to just before money needs to be raised it costs a lot of money to to run for president these days and people need to start raising the money but the biggest reason is the news media the news media needs to have Presidential election eyeballs on their television screens and computer screens, and people reading their newspapers with a political bent as much as possible, as often as possible. And if that means extending the presidential election from what used to be roughly January of the election year until election day fr- to the summer before the election, and by the summer I mean the summer before the year before the election, so for example, 2015, the summer of 2015, where you start with presidential candidates declaring their candidacy and and primary type debates going on in September, that's what it takes. That's what it takes. They're going to make more money on it. They need that audience. And I'm not so horrifically morally opposed to that, but what that does mean, but I am upset about one of the side effects of that, which is Way too much politics injected into every little thing in this country. And I really don't think that the American people, for the most part, are as politically active and and mentally connected to politics on every single thing as much as the news media is. I know that for a fact, actually. But the news media is trying to get us there. And it's for a business reason. They just haven't been able to generate as much interest in anything else. And granted, they've got plenty of... (laughs) competition just like they do in all the other news beats from social media and the other comp- competitors out there to mainstream media when it comes to politics but mainstream media is still the place you know you're going to tune in a lot of people who are young and use the internet for everything are still going to tune into a network on election night to see who's projected the winner or at least they'll follow that established network on their internet sites it's one of those things One of those things. And we'll follow the polls of the big-time pollsters who usually are aligned with a major network. You know, both NBC, ABC, and CBS, and CNN, and Fox, they all have their own polling companies that they partner with. Sometimes also with a newspaper, but that's how it works. So we're overly politicized. So when these kinds of events happen, this horrific shooting in Pittsburgh that we've been talking about here on Novak now on the nachum Siegel network, it gets politicized. And again, all these things I understand... But I need to drill down to what we really need to learn from these incidents. The first thing is for those who haven't been paying attention throughout the last 50 to 100 years, or 2,000 years, no one can be paying attention that long because we don't live that long, but but you understand the point. Anti-Semitic attacks of a violent nature have been going on since the beginning of recorded history. That's not probably going to change. It is... It's more than just childish. It's just naive and ignorant of history to think that the answer to these kinds of things is to preach love and inclusion. I think we should preach love and inclusion, but not with the understanding that that's going to stop attacks. That's that's a silly thing to believe. If we preach love and inclusion, maybe we can get one or two more people not to be consumed by hate, but someone who's already disposed to this kind of violence, that's not going to work. In fact, it might have a backfiring effect because they might feel like, this is so stupid, I can't stand this either. But the proactive thing to do, the only thing that we can do and should do, and we really can't even deny this, I mean, I just don't understand how anyone could be talking about anything else when it comes to doing something after this, it has to be about defending ourselves. Now, it happens to be there was no guard at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh. I don't know if they ever have one. I don't know if maybe they employ one on the high holidays. I don't know if this was a relatively unusual occurrence, but it appears that they just don't have any kind of security at that synagogue. And I understand. I understand it's not cheap, especially to get an armed guard at your place of business or house of worship. I understand it's not cheap. And because of that, the only argument or discussion or workaround problem that I would really spend a lot of time with with the community is discussing how to pay for it. That, to me, is worth discussing. You know, our synagogues, a lot of them are very cash-strapped. A lot of them have a lot of problems financially that they can't deal with. Some of them have an okay, an okay time with their finances. But if the Jewish community wants to do something about this, in addition to prayer and crying, which I think is appropriate for a certain period of time. But what needs to happen immediately is for us all to take a look at any synagogue or any Jewish school or Jewish organization that doesn't have security and say enough is enough. Enough is enough. And if money is the issue, let's raise the money. Let's raise the money for them and and deliver this. And if money is the issue, let's make sure all the synagogues and Jewish organizations out there know that there is federal matching funding available. My synagogue got that funding a few years ago. There's federal matching funding that's been available for years, I think since 9-11, really, for, to get you across that finish line if you can only raise half or, 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 or 60% of the money that you need for some kind of security. And for those who are really sensitive targets, it has to be armed security. And I'm sorry, and I, I don't mean that sarcastically, I'm sorry if that sends a message to you in your mind, isn't it sad that we need armed guards? But, you know, I have a 15-year-old daughter who said to me yesterday, like, what is the sadness involved there? Why should we be sad that there's a gun in the hands of someone who's, out, who's paid and is, is sworn to protect us? It's, it's just naive to think, well, why can't everyone be nice? Once you get out of kindergarten, you have to stop thinking like that, my friends. There's, there are always going to be evil people and dangerous people out there, and nothing that you do will change that. But you can stop them. Now, apparently the shooter yesterday, and again, I'm not going to say his name in Pittsburgh, was shooting for 20 minutes, 20 minutes, just going around shooting in a synagogue because there was nobody armed and no guard to stop him. Now, come on. Are you so invested politically in one side or the other that that can't be the focus of what you want to talk about today? Are you so politically invested in a partisan fight against other Americans and a lot of your fellow Jews that the only thing you want to talk about is voting down one candidate or the other based on this shooting yesterday and not the more pertinent and more burning issue of getting security in our synagogues and our Jewish organizations? How dare you? Stop. Just stop. Please. And start thinking about what we need to do to protect ourselves. And look at the state of Israel as a guide which for 70 years has been showing us this very, very, very clearly. There is just no excuse to discuss or to do anything else when about, or or focusing on any other action other than better defense. And yes, synagogues and rabbis and and religious leaders are going to want to pray and have vigils and do all those things. And I think that that is appropriate over the next 48 to 72 hours. There's nothing wrong with that, but that can't be the only thing we do. And Lord knows if that's the only thing you're doing, the only thing you're doing besides that is making political statements and deciding to tell people whom to vote for, or not to vote for, or blaming this on somebody who really has no direct connection to it, it has to stop. It has to stop. My goodness. You know, think about a car accident for a second. You know, we know there's drunk drivers out there. And we're doing our best to cut them down. And from what I understand, drunk driving, it has generally been on the decline for the last 40 years or so. But they're still out there every Saturday, Friday night. You know that there are drunk drivers out there. And what have we done mostly as a society about that, in addition to making it difficult and going after the drunk drivers? Absolutely. And going after bars that overserve people. That's absolutely an appropriate response. But the most appropriate response has been what we've done, which is... Get people to wear, you know, you know gosh darn seatbelt. Get airbags in your car. Get safety features in your car. Let's save ourselves. Let's defend ourselves because we're never going to completely get rid of the drunk drivers and all the road hazards out there. That's not going to happen. And we're not going to get rid of all the anti-Semites and all the killers out there either. We can prevent that as much as we possibly can, but we will never erase it. And as the state of Israel has taught us, self-defense is where we must focus our energies. This is Jake Novak. This has been Novak now on the Malcolm-Steagall Network. I'll speak to you again next week.